This is episode 251 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Post-Implantation Blastoids, with Drs. Thorold Thunison and Rowan Carvis. Hey, everybody. It's Dale on Arun back again with the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you're enjoying the Stem Cell Podcast, please rate us and leave a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests that we should have on the show. Today, we have Dr. Thorold Thunison and Rowan Carvis from Washington University in St. Louis on the podcast to talk about their research on stem cell-based embryo models. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news. That's coming right up. But first, we'd like to remind our listeners about ESC and IPSC News, one of stem cells' free weekly scientific newsletters. ESC and IPSC News summarizes all of the latest research, news, jobs, and events in ESC and IPSC research and delivers it right to your inbox every Wednesday. To save time and keep current with ESC and IPSC News, you can subscribe for free at ESCellnews.com. So speaking of some news in the stem cell field, this is unfortunate news, but definitely did want to highlight this before we get into the roundup. Unfortunately, uh, Sir Ian Wilmot, known as the scientist who led the team uh, that ultimately cloned Dolly the sheep back in the 90s, he passed away at the age of 79. And this is just a, such a sad loss and a major loss for the stem cell community. I was actually talking to my department chair, Clive Svensson, who actually knew him pretty well and said that Dr. Wilmot was one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. Um, and of course, he had such a profound impact on a generation of stem cell biologists, myself included. I remember hearing about Dolly the Sheep when I was a little kid in grade school, and that was actually part of the reason that I got inspired to go into science, this act of science that seemed like science fiction in, in cloning a, a mammal in Dolly the Sheep, and uh, just a, a profound loss for the community, and I think his his impact will will certainly live on. Oh, for sure. Uh, same here. I mean, this is the guy for me uh, who inspired me to get into science and specifically stem cells. And I mean, I don't know if if since there's been the same popular just enthusiasm about a scientific discovery as Dolly the sheep and really kicked open a whole era of uh, research, which uh, you could argue is culminated here in the week of his death with the the fourth and fifth, uh, at my count, recent papers describing these human embryo models, which in large part uh, owes to that really lasting imprint that Sir Ian Wilmot made on the field. So rest in peace, my guy, you're the OG, and uh, everybody's going to be thinking of your name's going to be in our hearts and minds probably for all of our lives. Um, getting on to that uh, agreeable bookend to Sir Ian Wilmot's career in life uh, this week. This is a first. We have actual guests on the show who are covered in the roundup. And for that reason, we're not going to go too deep into these papers. But uh, the fourth and fifth, as I alluded to, papers uh, describing human embryo models came out this past week in 
nature and cell stem cell. And just to give a, a brief review of the chronology, uh, two papers came out from Magdalena Zernica Goetz and Berna Sozin's group at the same time. And then June Wu dropped a paper in the middle there. And now in a week, uh, just a few days apart, Jacob Hanna's group and here Thor Thunison's group with Rowan Carvis, who are both on the show to talk about it, dropped their stories about human embryo models. So uh, some minor differences between all these stories, and, and we're going to uh, really dwell on those with our guest today, but just briefly, you know, I would say that the, the notable difference between these two papers, while they're both really amazing and impressive in the imagery and describing these primary differentiation events in human embryos, all ex vivo in vitro, uh, there were notable differences, I, I'd say, in, in the way they were accomplished. Uh, Jacob Hanna's group had uh, induction of primitive endoderm, and also there was assembly of these human embryo models from the constituent cell, cell types uh, at the point of the blastoid or gastroloid, uh, whereas uh, Dr. Thunison Carvis model built on June Wu's blastoid paper a couple of years ago using the same media and actually assembled the blastoid and then performed extended culture of that. Another notable difference is uh, the HANA paper went to uh, day 14. Uh, approximating Carnegie stage 6A in some of the lineages that were specified, whereas the Thunison paper had a notably longer extended culture to uh, day 21 of ex vivo culture. And that, uh, looking at the single cell sequencing, was shown to approximate Carnegie, Carnegie stage 7 of human, human embryo classification. So some minor differences, but for me, Arun, the big takeaway is that in these five different methodologies of doing effectively the same thing, th there's a lot of ways to skin a cat uh, is one thing. And also, you know, while all these models are approximating uh, some of the constituent cell types that are present in embryos uh, at these stages, they, they all do it to, to variable degrees and with, uh, I think, some subtlety in the diversity of, of derivatives that are present. Arun, what, what's your takeaway from the, the this fourth and fifth big splash papers on the human embryo models? My takeaway is this field is just going nowhere. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's going everywhere. And this is the point of emphasis in the stem cell field right now. I mean, these are the hottest technologies um, in our field, and we're just going to be covering these stories probably every single episode on our show for the next year i would say um the profile of these papers is extremely high and speaking of you know dr wilmot's work which really captured the public's imagination this is the type of stuff that's also capturing the public's eye and the public's attention um it's it's cool to see my parents and my family pick up listen to some of the the popular news outlets that are talking about this this sort of work, you know, I could think a lot of places can probably do a better job in covering this work, honestly. Um, but here we are, you know, th this field is just moving so rapidly, rapidly into the future. One thing I, I'd like to talk about technologically is, you know, all of these papers, and they are pretty astounding in terms of the technical technological advances that they're making, all these papers seem to be using human naive embryonic stem cells, right? So that is a, a critical component 
informing all of these early human embryo models. Um, it just tells you the power of this particular cell type. And I think different groups have different culture conditions for these naive embryonic stem cells, but that is the foundation in terms of their uh, uh, driving the self-aggregation processes that ultimately lead to the formation of these incredible developmental hallmarks. Like I'm just looking at the, the Hannah paper, which we've known about for some time now, because of course, you know, it was announced at ICCR. The preprint has been around for some time. But this paper from from Dr. Hanna's group is is incredible. Just the images and the three-dimensional reconstruction of the the embryo model is is just tremendous. I mean, they have uh, you know uh, examples of epiblasts, hypoblasts, extraembryonic mesoderm, uh, bilaminar disformation, amniogenesis, all these hallmark features of early human embryo development. Uh, they're starting to achieve it. And it's going to be fun chatting with uh, Dr. Carvis and Dr. Thunison about their work as well, because 21 days in culture is a big deal. And, uh, you know, we're just right there at the ethical boundary. And these are all things that we have to consider both technologically and ethically, because, like I said, this field is moving just so incredibly fast into the future. Yeah, amazing to think it's been just a few decades since Ian Ian Wilmot uh, made that really seminal imprint, and that was just the beginning of what's led to this. And now this, we're at the very start of a whole new field here with these embryo models, and I can't wait to see where it leads. Uh, we're going to take a little trip down the rabbit hole with uh, Dr. Thunison and Carvis on that in just a bit. But before that, we're going to do just one roundup story each to make time for that chat. I'm going to start with a story uh, that is, I think, again, uh, kind of uh, one of the progenitors, or at least the technology that originated here, organoids, um, is what led to this point with the human embryo models, you know, uh, moving into 3D. And it was, it was from among the first, in fact, arguably the first uh, person to, to introduce the world to uh, organoids along with Madeleine Lancaster, a friend of the show. In this case, I'm talking about Jürgen Knobloch, uh, who uh, has a story that was in nature with Barbara Trutlin as the co-lead. Uh, Jürgen Knobloch, as you may know, is from the IMBA. Barbara Trutlin is from ETH Zurich in Basel. Uh, and this is a story, as you might predict, about neural organoids, all right? And so we're talking about the brain and brain development and neural organoids, which can approximate some of those processes and try and glean some insight into how they work, which is tough, right? Because the brain, at least in my opinion, is the most elusive organ, not even to mention consciousness, which is so meta, it makes my head spin. Um, but here we're talking about the cells, right? And, and, and the, pr the process of brain formation starts early, early in embryogenesis around the time that these human embryo models that we're talking about today get to, although not quite, uh, it starts with neural tube formation uh, and neuroepithelial cells, which generate radial intermediate and outer radial glial progenitors um, in the dorsal region. The progenitors give rise to excitatory neurons in the ventral region. They generate interneurons that ultimately migrate into the dorsal region, integrate with those excitatory neurons. And all of this, amongst other cellular processes, happen um, in this really precise and highly orchestrated manner, uh, which remains really poorly understood, right? Because we don't have access to the human brain while it's developing uh, for a lot of reasons we're going to talk about and allude to in our conversation uh, with Dr. Stunison and Carvis, um, particularly 
when you talk about neurodevelopmental disorders or psychiatric disorders, um, it, it's tough to understand what the etiology is there because the brain's complex uh, and these disorders, particularly like autism spectrum disorder, for example, is diagnosed only after birth in most cases. Um, and if you want to try and understand what's going on in those patients, uh, you got to use neuroimaging at best or postmortem, which, you know, no one wants to wait uh, for that on a tragic event, right? So it's hard. Uh, and, and the defects that underlie autism spectrum disorder specifically, uh, a lot of evidence, most evidence suggests that they arise during fetal stages, right? So this is where organoids become a really useful tool, right? Uh, but organoids are these clumps of cells. Uh, it's a challenge with those because uh, while they allow you to approximate neural differentiation, there's a lot of phenotypic variability from organoid to organoid, right? And it takes a lot to make an organoid. So you can't really do it in high throughput. Um, so with that being the case, doctors Trutlin and Noblik here developed this approach. They love uh, their acronyms in the Noblik lab. I don't think he's ever had a paper that didn't have an acronym ascribed to the technology developed there. In this case, it's CRISPR human organoids, single cell RNA sequencing. Uh, and he calls that CHOOSE, C-H-O-O-S-E. We're gonna have to get him on the show to explain how the heck that comes about. But I love it because uh, this is, and I get it. You make a technology, you, you create a, a acronym for it so that everyone will use it. And it won't be long before everybody is choosing CHOOSE uh, for their approach for genetic screening. And this, in this technology, it's, it's great, high resolution, also high throughput. It's this inducible uh, CRISPR-based genetic disruption that's combined with single-cell transcriptomics uh, to look at loss of function screening in what, what they're calling mosaic organoids, right? So they throw a bunch of these uh, single-guide RNAs. In this case, they looked at 36 high-risk autism spectrum disorder genes. Um, they dumped all these guide RNAs to disrupt them in this kind of mosaic system and examine how each of the one of those perturbations affected cell fate de determination, right? And they did that by looking on the back end using single cell seek and single cell multiomics, right? To look at the single cell resolution on a cell intrinsic level, which each one of these disruptions is doing to proliferation. And what they found is that dorsal intermediate progenitors and ventral progenitors and upper layer excitatory neurons are the most vulnerable cell types to dysfunction in these 36 high-risk autism spectrum disorder genes. Uh, specifically, they show that if you perturb uh, members of the BAF chromatin remodeling complex, you get enrichment of these ventral telencephalon progenitors. Um, uh, and that if you mutate the specific subunit of that BAF complex, uh, ARID1B, uh, you get a transition to uh, oligodendrocyte and interneuron precursor cells. And then they go on using patient-specific iPS cells in autistic uh, patients, cells derived from those patients to show that that phenotype is real uh, and corroborated. So another tour de force from Nalik, in this case, in partnership with Trutlin, where he does it all in one, they do it all in one swoop here. They introduce the technology and then apply it and, and really get at some of the etiology potentially of disease. Um, 
And this is key because, right, understanding how to fix a system, you, you understand how it goes wrong. And of course, while no one's really talking about mucking around with the cell space specification in C2 in a fetal autistic or potentially autistic uh, spectrum disorder brain, um, this is a first step and understanding which of the cells that are enriched are where the imbalance is. So a really exciting story showcasing a, 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 a technology, I think, that's not completely original, but I think takes this high throughput screening to a, a new degree of resolution that can then be exerted in, in all kinds of systems. Uh, so yeah, choose, choose, uh, whatever your system is, get into it. Arun, cardiomyocytes, choose, choose. All right, if you say so. <laughs> hey, I think the application here could be across tissues. I, I agree with you. But, you know, this is just one of those papers that's incorporating all of these amazing technologies that are just intersecting in the stem cell field. You got organoids, you got the single cell, you got the CRISPR, you got the screening. Everything's bringing this together. And, of course, I think Dr. Noblick's lab is perfectly positioned to, to push all these technologies forward together in this choose system. I mean... I reflect on a conversation we had with Tomas Khan, who's a friend of mine, also a neurodevelopmental biologist who used to be at, at Stanford, and now he's a, he's a VC. He's not doing uh, basic science anymore, but he had a really good point where, you know, even folks in, say, Sergio Pasca's lab, and he was a grad student in Sergio's lab, sometimes they have a, a, a difficulty making that connection between genetics and phenotype when it comes to a lot of these neurodevelopmental behavioral conditions like autism. Autism is famously a spectrum, right? And certainly there are classes of high-risk genes like the ones that they're identifying here. But you know, I, I sometimes have that disconnect in some of these developmental modeling studies too. How are you connecting these genes to a true developmental phenotype? It's not something like, okay, if somebody has this cardiac mutation, they're going to have cardiomyopathy. It's like a one-to-one -one phenotype. With some of these other autism spectrum disorders, it's it's much more graded in terms of the response. So, but hey, I'm just not I'm not the only one thinking about it. The Mossop's not the only one thinking about it. I'm sure Dr. Noblick is has been thinking about it forever, uh, but that's just one caveat I wanted to bring up. There are a couple of other limitations, actually. They specifically touch on this. Their system actually doesn't include a, a major cell type that's involved in a lot of these nerve developmental disorders, that is uh, the microglia, these associate cell types that are found in the brain. Um, and the other, actually, if you think about it from a genetics perspective, I think this one is really important. In CRISPR, as we know, some of the mutations that you're introducing, especially with some of these screening approaches, they could be homozygous or heterozygous. And the, the zygosity of that mutation has a big role in the downstream phenotype. And so they actually don't know if the perturbed cells here are heterozygous or homozygous. And I think that's a, that's a really important caveat to consider. But nonetheless, you know, amazing tour de force in terms of integrating all these technologies, pushing forward the envelope in helping to understand the mechanisms of autism. I mean, like I said, there is sometimes a disconnect when you think about the genotype phenotype here, but you got to start somewhere, right? Absolutely, you party pooper. You got to start somewhere. <laughs> and Trutlin and Noblik, I think they're starting in a strong place. I mean, they're not, they, this isn't even them starting. I think this is a, a step along the way uh, that they both ha had large roles in initiating as well. But I mean, yes, all, all those limitations uh, notwithstanding, um, I think that this is an amazing step forward, even withstanding. Uh, and to your point about the the genotype-phenotype divide, I think that that's where I got so excited about this paper is because 
ultimately, and I've been the first, I've always been one to say, don't, I don't even want to think about brain science because it's just too meta, but like, it's got to start, I think, in these patients that are affected by autism spectrum disorder with the balance or imbalance of cell types in their brain, right? So uh, it, like I said, in the coverage there, you, you don't want to wait till postmortem. You don't want to have to look inside the brain to see where that imbalance is. I think looking here at when the cells are made, you get some insight. In this case, you, get, you put your finger on it and then verify using patient-specific iPS cells that those genes they do have an effect on the phenotype in terms of cell type specification. And that, if I were at all facile in understanding the brain at all, which I'm not, I might then form some hypotheses saying, okay, the imbalance in the excitatory versus the telencephalon and the dorsal ventral, blah, blah, blah. Maybe this is, is what's underlying the behavioral uh, facets of, of disease. And it's a, a reflection of that cellular neuronal imbalance. So I, I think that there is, this is what's creating that connection. I think it's stories like these that we need to strengthen that thread between the genotype and phenotype. So kudos from me. And I know you're not uh, raining on the parade at all, Arun. You're as impressed as I am, but I, I think it is important to point out the limitations of the study just so uh, the next time we cover a paper from Noblick and, and Truthland Labs, we can show how they plug those gaps. Absolutely. Not trying to be a party pooper at all. And I will say this, you know, using a human system is incredibly important in studying these, you know, neurodevelopmental and uh, behavioral disorders, as opposed to using mice, right? So that's another disconnect that sometimes people have is, oh, you're studying human autism in a mouse model. How does that even work? So I agree with you. I'm not trying to belittle this at all. It's an incredible tour de force intersecting a bunch of really cool technologies in the stem cell field. Um, and moving on to another study, which is, I think, really cutting edge in terms of their approaches. Um, this is a favorite topic of mine. This is chimerism. And, uh, you know, brings me back to my grad school days where, uh, one of my favorite studies that came out when I was a grad student was this paper from Hiro Nakauchi, which ultimately Stanford recruited Hiro Nakauchi to, to join the, the PhD stem cell program there. But Hiro Nakauchi had this really astounding, almost science fiction-like study a few years ago, like a decade ago, where he was basically chimerizing uh, rat and mouse cells, early uh, embryos, so that ultimately he could make a mouse or a rat, I forget the combination, but basically one of the animals had the pancreas of the other animal, okay? And it was just a hallmark study in, in, in mammalian chimerism. And the application, you can think about what the application is, right? Ultimately, one thought is we could make, say, large animals, pigs that have human organs being grown inside of them. Ethically, is certainly a, a lot of things to consider. Uh, it's in the realm of science fiction, but we're starting to get a little bit closer, I would say. And so here's a cell stem cell story that's starting to approach that exact question, uh, focusing on the kidney. And this is the title of this paper is Generation of a Humanized Mesonephros in Pigs from IPS Cells via Embryo Complementation. Again, one of the coolest sub areas in stem cell biology. So as we know, you know, organ transplantation is a problem. There's not a whole lot of organs for transplant available. And the ultimate goal for these studies 
is to increase the number of human organs that potentially are available for transplant, right? Whether it's xenotransplantation or more most recently, there was that study from, uh, I believe, I forget where it was, somewhere on the East Coast, where they generated these custom pigs with the immunocompatible hearts, and they were able to transplant those immunocompatible pig hearts into people, right? So the ultimate goal is, of course, increasing the number of organs that are available for transplantation, no matter how you get there, okay? But this approach, this chimerism embryo complementation approach, has a ton of challenges, namely the poor integration of human cells in this context into recipient tissues. So what they did here is actually to uh, to produce human cells with a superior intra-niche competitiveness, as they called it, they combined these optimized pluripotent stem cell conditions with an inducible overexpression of two survival genes, MYCN and BCL2, which if you think about it, those are oncogenes. So this is a very artificial system. And I'm not saying this is this immediate system has clinical applicability at all, but I think this was a, a more of a basic science approach to lay the foundation for those clinical approaches, right? So when they generated these uh, custom human PSCs overexpressing these pro-survival genes, the resulting cells actually had much, much higher viability in the uh, the xeno environment of these chimeric blastocysts um, and actually ultimately form these organized human pig chimeric early stage uh, kidney structures, mesonephros structures up to embryonic day 28 inside these nephric defective pig embryos. Okay. So that's another important part of the study is for the complementation in the pig embryos, they knocked out genes that are normally important for the de development of kidney. They complemented those with these uh, human PSCs that are overexpressing these survival genes. So that's how they made these early pig embryos that um, are basically defective in the pig pig kidney development that are complemented with the, the human kidneys. Again, this is super, super early stage, nowhere near um, going to term at all. And the other thing to emphasize here, and again, this is a huge limitation of the, the Nakauchi paper back 10 years ago too. The efficiency of this process is is ridiculously low, like ridiculously low. There's a there's a table here in figure two, which is outlining the efficiency of the process. So total transferred embryos, 1,820, so close to 2,000 embryos transferred, and total embryos that actually had the some aspect of chimerism, under five, under five embryos. So the, that, I mean, that right there, for one, it's an accomplishment that anything at all is able to chimerize, but two, that's certainly a limitation in bringing these studies forward into clinical applicability is just that the efficiency of this process is just unbelievably low. But hey, the fact that it's possible at all is cool, and uh, inevitably these studies are just going to get better and better over time. Yeah, wow, that's a crazy amount of work. I didn't see that. A thousand attempts, that poor technician postdoc uh kudos to them for uh keeping going i mean when you have i, I remember trying to trans transplant uh inject mouse blastocysts with clumps of human embryonic stem cells and after like the the 200th time and it doesn't work you, you give up <laughs> but uh either these people had some early results uh, that encouraged them or they were just dogged in their pursuit either way 
Um, kudos to them. I'm not trying to throw shade, but since you were hating on my story, not really, I'm just kidding. But um, just a point of like maybe limitations here, I would ask, uh, because this has always dogged me about these interspecies uh, chimera type or organ transplant. And to your point about the, you were talking about the the gal deficient pigs where you take the kidneys or the, the heart and transplant them into these uh, in one case, the guy was still kicking around, but they've done at NYU here, they've done a bunch of uh, transplants of kidneys into brain dead uh, recipients just to see if they'll function. And they do. And they pass urine and everything. Um, so that's really impressive in terms of the pig derived organs, which is some real sci-fi stuff there. But what I've always wondered, and vis-a-vis -vis that approach is maybe being more viable than this, is what about all the other non-kidney components, right? The vasculature specifically, like, is this a... A uh, kidney with a uh, human kidney with pig vessels. In that case, is it suitable for transplant? I don't know. And, and given the the how far we have to go in terms of efficiency, I think this is more of an academic exercise in terms of how cells can aggressively uh, fill in a niche that's been vacated, uh, which I think is a really important field of study. But in terms of whether or not these these organs are ever going to be used for transplant, I am skeptical. I think that they'll be that the, those gal minus uh, gal deficient pigs are going to be a, a much more practical um, and scalable alternative. But what the hell do I know, Arun? Not much. <laughs> what the hell do I know either, right? This is not my field of expertise. I'm just a fan. I'm just a fan of the kind of work. But I agree with you. I think it's the immunocompatible pigs that are going to get to clinical applicabilities. I mean, they've already gotten to clinical applicability. So I think that's that's way ahead. But like you said, you know, we're talking about, I don't know about if we're going towards the island, <laughs> right? But that is sort of the the approach here, right? Is this complementation study where you have just pigs that are just created for the purpose of uh, growing human organs. I mean, has anybody asked the pigs if they're okay with this? I don't know. <laughs> The pigs don't get a vote, Arun. Didn't you know? We're eating them, for God's sakes. Um, we're not going to talk about that with our guests. We're going to talk about some other crazy stuff, uh, suitably sci-fi for this episode. But before we get there, I have a quick message from Stem Cell. Take your human pluripotent stem cell cultures further with M-Teaser Plus from Stem Cell Technologies, the most widely published medium for feeder-free human ES and IPS cell maintenance is now formulated for enhanced performance and versatility. M-Teaser Plus reduces medium acidosis for more stable cultures all weekend long. To learn more, visit www.stemcell.com slash M-Teaser Plus. All right, everybody, following from last episode with Nicola Rivron talking about blastoids, we have an interview with two esteemed scientists from Washington University in St. Louis. That's Dr. Thor Tunison and Rowan Carvis. Uh, they're on the show to talk about human embryo models. Dr. Tunison's lab investigates the molecular basis of pluripotency, the mechanisms of trophoblast development, and the generation of stem cell-based embryo models. And in that lab, Dr. Carvis's research focuses on engineering 3D microenvironments to model early human development. And they just had this bombshell paper and cell stem cell that we're going to talk about in this interview. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yes, the pleasure is ours. We've been really looking forward to all these stories coming out since the ISSCR, and we want to thank you for coming on the show so so soon 
after the publication of this big deal story. Let's just start with that. You know, this summer, it's been a, a real roller coaster ride for the field. Of course, it's been a long time coming, but starting at the ISSCR in mid June, which is, you know, a couple months ago, pretty much, multiple groups have been sharing, in some cases, sparring about their work with human embryo models. At last count, uh, we have Magdalena Zernica Goats, Berna Sozin, June Wu, Jacob Hanna, and most recently, your own work published in the highest profile journals. Uh, we don't have time to unpack all these stories in any kind of granular detail, but can you guys tell us what you think these stories share in common and what makes your story unique? Hey, yeah, sure. Well, it's been a, a wild summer. I think we can all agree on that in terms of embryo modeling. Um, I guess what all the current stories have in common is that they attempt to model post-implantation stages of human embryonic development. So really moving beyond these pre-implantation models, the blastoids that were established a couple of years ago um, from naive cells. Um, now, the way they attempt to model the post-implantation embryo, though, is really quite different. And I think that's where our story is unique. Um, so if you, for example, take the, the two studies that you mentioned, um, Magdalena Zernitsa Goetz's work, Jacob Hanna's work, they actually attempt to model a post-implantation embryo by first assembling the right building blocks in vitro. So they're you know, making epiblast equivalents, primitive endoderm equivalents, trophoblast equivalents, and putting them together to form a post-implantation embryo model in different ways with transgene approaches or chemical approaches. And what we've done is really quite different. So instead of trying to build these different lineages in vitro before making the embryo model, we've actually tried to make a pre-implantation blastocyst-like structure, a blastoid, and then allow it to continue to develop through the early stages of post-implantation development up to gastrulation. Um, so the, the difference here is that all of these are integrated embryo models. What we're trying to do is also add this dynamic element, this continuous modeling capability, where you actually track the process from pre-implantation development through early post-implantation up to gastrulation. So I think in that sense, they're really quite distinct approaches, each with their pros and cons that we can get into, uh, but they're fundamentally different in terms of the, the continuity versus kind of the snapshot nature of some of these other models. Yeah, I mean, structurally, these embryo models that your group and the other groups are presenting are very impressive. I mean, I'm not even in this immediate field, but I can appreciate just how complex these things are becoming. I mean, some of them are exhibiting developmental hallmarks, such as bilaminar discs, proamniotic cavities. And I mean, the blastoids that you present didn't show full primitive streak formation, although you started to see some markers, such as TBXT, for example, in the 21-day extended culture. And I think that was really a, a major highlight of your study. So, I mean, this 21-day culture is amongst the longest that we've seen these in vitro models grown, you know? And so, so tell us more about the the rationale for that extended culture. And since it's such a long culture, there are certainly some ethical considerations to take into account as well. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, lots to unpack there. I'll let, maybe I'll, I'll get started with that. So initially, we were interested in asking, can we take the pre-implantation blastoid, which more or less resembles a day seven, uh, day eight human embryo, through early post-implantation uh, development. That was really the first objective. So can we get to bilaminar disc formation? Can we get 
epiblast, uh, luminogenesis, can we see trophoblast expansion, differentiation, all of that was really not known before. And so we applied a, a kind of technical, we think a technical innovation in using a 3D culture system. Roman can tell you more about the details as opposed to a 2D flat culture system, which was used in previous blastoid studies. And we found that our blastoids could actually attach uh, quite efficiently to these optimized 3D matrices and begin to initiate these early stages of post-implantation development. And if you look at the immunostaining, the single cell data, it looks like we capture most, if not all, probably not all, but most features of that early post-implantation kind of day 14 embryo, if we grow them up to day 14 on the optimized 3D matrix. But we noticed that there were things missing. So in particular, we found that the primitive endoderm proportion component of the blastoids was not developing as efficiently. Likewise for amnion, another key extraembryonic layer. And as you mentioned, Arun, the primitive streak maybe started to grow. We saw some signatures in the tr transcriptome data, but there wasn't like a recognizable primitive streak stru structure yet if you do immunostaining. So then we asked, can we actually take that uh, early post-implantation blastoid model forward if we extend the um, in vitro culture period? And so we let them go up to day 18 and then even up to day 21, which was the limit of our institutional approval. And we can get into how we kind of established that boundary of 21 days institutionally, but that's the very limit of what we're allowed to do here at WashU. And remarkably, we found that if you let the blastoids grow until day 21, they do catch up, okay? So we start to see very nice primitive streak induction, both by immunostaining, this localized brachyuri, um, and a clear primitive streak signature in terms of the single cell transcriptome data. And more so, not only do we see primitive streak emerging, we also see signs of embryonic germ layer induction. And that's where things get really interesting because at that point you're not only entering gastrulation, you're actually you know, undergoing early germ layer induction. Now I do need to qualify that because we see endoderm and we see mesoderm, definitive endoderm and mesoderm. We don't see any signs of neural induction in this system, even by day 21. Now you can argue why is that happening? Um, so the best kind of comparison for us is the Tizer data set, right? This Carnegie stage seven human embryo that was analyzed uh, by a group in the UK. And they analyzed the day 16 to day 19 human gastrulating embryo. And likewise, they saw mesoderm, endoderm, but no neural induction. Okay, so we think for whatever reason, it's you know it's still a little bit unclear if that one gastrulating embryo is fully representative of human development at that stage, but it looks like mesendoderm may form before neural induction. And we see that same thing happening in our post-implantation blastoids. It's convenient though, from an ethical standpoint, because an explicit argument we made to our escrow committee is that we wanna capture a stage of development before neural induction really kicks in. And you know, before also you get cardiomyocyte differentiation, we don't see that either. And we think we've kind of captured that snapshot in time at the very extreme end of the blastoid protocol. Sorry, there was a lot there. <laughs> yeah, that was a, a very fluent uh, explanation. Rowan, jump in if you want. Sure, um, so I guess I'd like to just add, you know, uh, my perspective sort of growing them along the way was that, you know, at first we were sticking to the 14 day limit. Um, you know, due to ethical considerations and understanding the, the limits of a natural human blastocyst growth. Um, 
So as I was growing them for 14 days, I was just noticing that they were at 14 days, just starting to become interesting. They were forming these really beautiful little cords of primary villi uh, moving out of the uh, blastoid center as they were implanting into, into my gels. Um, and so I really encouraged Thor and um, we encouraged each other to sort of extend the time limit because you know, my background is in reproductive biology and in the placenta in particular. And I just know from all of the historical literature, all the way back from, you know, 1950s when they were sectioning, you know, human primary, uh, uh, primary human embryos at, that they could acquire at that time from the uterus, um, you know, from these hysterectomy uh, samples that they were able to acquire at that time. Um, you know, the very early development of the placenta, it's, it's uh, I would I would argue maybe this is a, a very controversial take on this show, but I think the placenta is doing a few more interesting things, to be honest, than the epiblast at that time period. So I was really interested in studying early villus development, particularly these primary villi that were um, emerging and also the secondary villi, which is the, the next step in placental villus development. Um, and so that's why we really, uh, for me personally, and also for Thor as well, that we wanted to um, extend the, the, the time constraints a little bit more. Um, and so I'm really excited to explore those lineages further. If I could just add a thought to this, and that's actually important to contextualize how we started working on this blastoid model. Um, so what really inspired this from our lab's perspective was the finding that the naive stem cells that we use in the lab that we actually developed when I was a postdoc in Rovianish's lab, I started deriving these cells. And we realized in recent years that these cells are really quite competent to form extra embryonic tissues. So these naive cells very readily generate fectoderm, trophoblast stem cells, Rowan's Previous paper was on making trophoblast organoids as a model of placental development, SARS-CoV-2 infection, all starting from these naive cells. So we knew they had that capacity to make trophectoderm trophoblast. And we've actually noticed this interesting discussion point that our blastoids are especially good at making these trophoblast lineages. We see a lot of expansion of the trophoblast compartment all subtypes. Now it gets very technical, but you've got cytotrophoblast, extravillous trophoblast, syncytiotrophoblast, even primitive syncytium. It's all there. And if anything, maybe some of the embryonic structures are slightly delayed compared to the, you know, kind of corresponding human embryos, if you look at the Carnegie stages. And, you know, this probably reflects trying to find the ideal culture medium to allow all these lineages to grow. But absolutely what Rowan just mentioned, the placental, the ability to now model placental development in an integrated embryo model is we think you know, maybe the most exciting aspect of this. Because some of the other works you mentioned, Aylan, at the outset, these recent papers are really good at making epiblast and hypoblast compartments that interact with each other, that signal to each other. It's beautiful work, but you wanna have the placenta there to see how the placenta feeds back to these embryonic structures. Oh, 100 percent. And uh, as a, you know, someone who specializes in reproductive biology is one fast in my research program. I appreciate more than anything uh, that now we're able to crack open that black box, as I've been saying over and over over the past couple of months with these human embryo models, that we're getting to see that. And to your point earlier, Thor, uh, I think it's amazing that at this point in, in our understanding of human embryology, we're just kind of parsing out whether or not neural lineages are established at 19 or 21. Like, how do we not know that yet? 
Um, and the fact that now that we can we can ask those questions with this embryo model, with these embryo models, I think really underscores their potential, particularly uh, with the extra embryonic. But um, to that point, as you said, there there's going to take some optimization to allow all these lineages to coexist and to form form a coherent whole, so to speak. Although that's not the end game for for you guys or anybody really at this point is making humans brave new world style in a vat somewhere. Uh, but, you know, just speaking to the the possibilities, we, we just had Nicolas Rivron on the, on the last episode of the podcast, as I mentioned, the open. And of course, he deserves a, a, a ton of, if not all the credit for elevating this field uh, of stem cell research and developmental biology. And we asked him about the outer limits of the platform. You know, you're working with human cells. So as I said, the idea of carrying those embryos to later stages of fetal development is a non-starter. And to be clear, perigastral models are not going to get very far without a maternal in interface, right? Or surrogate thereof, as we're alluding to with the uh, input from the from the mom. Um, but it remains to be seen whether mouse blastoids uh, that are implanted into foster mice uteri can live born pups, right? Uh, this is an important gold standard proof of the developmental potential of embryo models. And in vivo, uh, the plasticity of the intercell mass and trophectoderm cells makes them tremendously resilient. I mean, I work in an IVF clinic. We beat the hell out of the trophectoderm for the biopsy. You know, epiblasts can be split and they'll, you know, compensate. Um, so it's pretty robust in vivo, but no one's been able to get live-born pups, right? So what's missing in the blastoids? What, what do you think it's going to take to enable them to generate pups? Like you're making, you're assembling an embryo, right? As, a, as opposed to growing an embryo. What what is it that might interfere? Is it like epigenetics? Is it that these these cells are a different like desynchronized because they're not in they're all in one media as opposed to optimized media for each one? What are your thoughts there about what what why it's not going right? What may be going wrong? Um, it's at least with mice, there's a, a very particular timing that has to happen post implantation, and perhaps um, the timing of these in vitro models and, and something we're understanding from our own system, the timing of the in vitro model systems and perhaps also, and then the timing that's present in the maternal uterine environment maybe isn't totally matching up. Maybe that's an issue. Um, we know evolutionarily that these timings have to be uh, very tightly controlled. Um, so that's maybe one aspect. I can't speak directly to the mouse either. I would potentially, you know, suggest that the building blocks used to make the blastoids, right? The TS cells, the ES cells, perhaps there needs to be more optimization to really get the right TS cells that you proper, you know, you get a proper pre-implantation trophectoderm. I think there's still a lot of debate about the ideal conditions. Nicolas has been working on that um, to form uh, mouse TSCs that truly resemble the pre-implantation trophectoderm. I can tell you, looking at our model on the human side, what's what? So what's missing at the moment, right? So we see that the amnion is delayed and the yolk sac is delayed in these early post-implantation stages. And we know that our naive stem cells that we use as the basic building block to make the blastoid are very efficient at making trophectoderm and trophoblasts. Now, work from Austin Smith and Peter Ragun has shown that there's this transition in competence from trophectoderm to amnion as the naive stem cells undergo a so-called formative transition, where they acquire first a formative and then a prime state. And that correlates with this gain in amnion potential. And so 
the potential explanation for what we're seeing is that because we use these very pristine naive cells, they're great at making trophectoderm, trophoblast lineages, but somewhat impaired in their ability to generate amnion. And you need to modulate that with other chemicals that we still need to kind of play around with. Um, the yolk sac, that's actually a common issue between mouse and human blastoid protocols. It looks like primitive endoderm does not develop as efficiently as you'd expect from a human embryo. And there are different you know, theories out there how one might mitigate that. Again, we may need to add different cues to get the primitive endoderm to develop more quickly. One might also consider some kind of hybrid approach where you do mix in some primitive endoderm progenitors, a little bit more like these modular embryo model papers that are now coming out. Um, so I think there need to be specific fixes to those extra embryonic tissues, amnion and yolk sac, which are key signaling centers for gastrulation. So again, we do see some development of these uh, tissues within our, our human embryo model post-implantation, but there is a delay. Now, I'll, I'll add another point because you raised this question of epigenetics, Dalen. Um, again, the starting cells we use are naive stem cells cultured in media that lose parent-specific imprinting. Okay, this is well-established in the field. It's something I realized, you know, into my postdoc a few years after we had derived these cells and other groups reported this as well, that there's so much demethylation in these naive stem cells that they lose this parent-specific epigenetic memory. There's a big debate in the developmental biology field to what extent those imprints really matter for development. And I've seen some evidence to suggest that maybe they're not that important leading up to gastrulation, but become really important afterwards, right? Obviously, if you have mutations in imprinted loci, you get disorders like Prader-Willi syndrome, et cetera. Um, so there is an argument, and again, maybe from an ethical standpoint for the time being, it's convenient that these current naive cells very likely epigenetically are unable to form a full organism. They don't have that reproductive potential because they're missing these imprints. That said, we and others are actively looking for ways to enhance that imprint stability. Um, so I think it's a combination of specific developmental milestones that are missing. Probably those are more protocol-related issues, and then also the epigenetic state of the starting stem cells. Yeah, I mean, it's also just a reflection on the evolutionary differences between mouse and human development. I mean, the fact that you guys are focusing on more on the human side of things, but and I think you did a great job in hypothesizing an answer for the mouse side as well. But, you know, it's just, you know, you would think that it's only a few million years of evolution, tens of millions of years of evolution that are, you know, separating human and mouse. But the evolution, the, the processes that are driving these developmental prin principles and developmental timeline is just totally different between the two species. And that's not just reflected in the, the development, but if you're thinking about the downstream applications, as we know, differentiation of like iPSCs, mouse iPSCs, and human iPSCs, and maintenance of human and mouse iPSCs, you, they require different culture conditions. So, you know, just another uh, reflection of that evo-devo principle and those evo-devo differences. So, I mean, I, the other part of the paper that I thought was really cool, and you actually highlighted this brief, briefly, were, were some of the technologies that you're actually using to enable the development of these blastoids. I mean, you mentioned those pyramid agarwells that are used to force the aggregation of the naive state ESCs. Of course, you're mentioning the naive state ESCs. You know, of course, that was critical to the overall study. 
And certainly we're huge fans of all different kinds of new technologies here on the show. We highlight, uh, love to highlight these things. And single cell was a major focus of your study. It's, I don't think single cell, I don't think your paper would have been possible without using a whole lot of single cell analysis and, you know, to dive really deeply into the, the transcriptional profiling of these cells and the, the downstream. Um, talk a little bit about the technologies. Just, you know, there's so many cool technologies in the field of stem cell biology that have enabled the work that you're doing. Um, what are some of the, the most innovative technologies that you think are enabling this kind of work to, to really progress forward? Yeah, I guess, you know, maybe to start off with, um, yeah, you mentioned the naive cells. I mean, that's obviously the, the vital ingredient to be able to make these embryo models. I think all the papers are in agreement that it's very difficult to build um, whichever type of embryo model you're talking, whether it's pre-implantation, early post-implantation, starting from prime cells that hasn't been done so far. I think it's unlikely to work. So you really need to go to either a naive state or an intermediate state to be able to get the right cellular identity. And again, we go all the way back to the pre-implantation blastoid. We build that from naive cells spontaneously and then allow that to progress through these early stages of post-implantation development. So that was key. Um, you mentioned the need for single cell sequencing. Absolutely, right? I mean, we wouldn't be where we are now without the ability to compare these in vitro structures to human embryos. And so we, we need to do a big shout out to our collaborator, Sabine Dietmann, who's a computational biologist who ran um, really most of these analyses, as well as, of course, the labs that actually generated the reference data sets, right? I mean, shout out to them. Um, but, you know, talking about this Tizer data set, um, there's uh, this Shang study from China a few years ago that uh, grew human embryos actually also in a 3D embedded uh, culture method up to day 14. And all of those provide great references for us to be able to benchmark our embryo models as well as those from other labs. And then, yeah, maybe you want to comment on the 3D culture aspect, which was the other technical innovation. Yeah, so... Um understanding uh, what what we know about early post-implantation is that you know uh, many previous labs had started experimenting with their with their blastoids going post-implantation maybe for a few days um, but these were all on you know flat hard surfaces coated with maybe major gel or gel tracks or some other kind of um, uh, commercially available gels that were um, all in two dimensions. Um, and, and we were able to recapitulate, or, or, or those groups were able to recapitulate many aspects of early post-implantation with that model. Um, however, I just, I, I had to, you know, just know, knowing what I know about early implantation, it occurs in three dimensions, obviously. So I started experimenting with um, utilizing um, other commercially available gels um, uh, to in three dimensions to see, um, you know, given that extra dimension of space, what do these blastoids uh, what can they accomplish? What do they do post-implantation? Um, and I was able to see far more uh, robust and um, interesting structures being formed post-implantation. Um, you know, I, I was talking about how interesting the uh, placental lineages uh, ended up becoming, but but also the embryonic structures, the epiblast formed um, these three-dimensional uh, amniotic cavities and epiblast morphologies um, far more robustly in three dimensions. Um, as well as the uh, rapid expansion and uh, segregation of primitive endoderm regions as well. Um, and so uh, I guess the other kind of innovative aspect of it was not just um, utilizing a three dimensions in, in these gels, um, but also just that I think it's kind of amazing that um, in not only our model, but many other models, is that um, once these lineages are established in the pre-implantation embryo and 
using our uh, our BIM methodology, our plaster induction media, once we have the segregation of trophectoderm uh, and the intercell mass lineages, um, post implantation, there's really, you know, there's no, we had no growth factors or inhibitors um, in the post implantation media, you know, so far. We're um, thinking about optimizing that, of course, um, going forward, but getting going on, on, on my first round of experiments, I was just, you know, utilizing very simple media, very simple gels. And um, it became very clear that once these lineages are established in the pre-implantation blastoid, that they were able to just keep going and differentiating um, sort of uh, somewhat as expected, mm -hmm. um, just utilizing simple serum-free medias. Um, I did end up adding a little bit of estrogen to sort of induce maybe some maternal uh, influence on them, but yeah. otherwise uh, fairly simple. Yeah, and I guess that, I mean, what we've learned over the, the last decade leaving, leading up to these embryo models is that's the key, right? You've got to unleash the cells. They've got this intrinsic capacity, and if you set them on the right path, you know, vis-a-vis -vis organoids uh, with the intestinal organoids being the prime example is that they'll form the the kind of the metaform right um so yeah uh, a lot of optimization to be done for sure but uh, the intrinsic potential of the cell is, is i think really at the center of everything uh and really illustrated well here with these embryo models but rowan you know back to you it, it was it was lovely meeting you for the first time uh, at this year's ISSCR but I didn't realize then that we'd already highlighted your work at the previous year's ISSCR in, in San Francisco and your name has been ringing out in like every other episode over the last few months so you're already a star and are surely fielding a lot of exciting opportunities to start your own lab um, I'm guessing that lab will integrate your amazing productivity and passion for trophoblast biology and human embryo models. But could you elaborate a bit on your vision, not just for the next steps in your lab, but uh, and for the field, uh, but also big picture? Uh, what, what's the end game here? You talked about modeling the maternal infra interface. That's your focus. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of applications here, but could you give us some of the big picture applications, uh, starting with you, Rowan? Where, where do you think this is going to lead us, um, either translationally or just in terms of basic understanding of human embryo development? Right, right. I think that there are a lot of applications, both um, just basic science and and hopefully someday translationally. Um, obviously, one of the biggest human benefits that we can get out of our blastoid model is the ability to um, understand more about these major bottlenecks that happen in human reproduction, uh, where we see embryonic failures happening either at the formation of the blastocyst stage or the early implantation and attachment stage, or even downstream of that, where we see maybe um, issues either with the um, uh, differentiation of the embryonic lineages um, in gastrulation or in the development of the placenta very early on. So this model will hopefully be able to help us understand those three major um, bottlenecks that may be occurring in um, early uh, in human development and in in human reproduction. Um, and I hope to um, be able to utilize this model to understand a little bit more about that and um, utilize it translationally maybe um, going forward. So um, I guess as far as my vision for my own work, um, obviously I do, I still have a huge passion for the human placenta and, um, and studying the early development of, of that um, in my own lab. I hope to be able to utilize both the organoids and the blastoids going forward to study that process. 
Um, as I was saying before, um, one of my biggest pass passions right now is trying to understand early human villas development. Um, we really don't know as a field in the placental field, and I, I kind of hope to um, sort of start to studying start to study the human placenta more, sort sort of like a developmental biologist would. <laughs> um, and so um, I'd like to sort of study the development of these villi. There really isn't a whole lot known about it. There's just observational techniques that we've been able to utilize with imaging um, uh, and, and whatnot of the human placenta. But obviously, you know, this being, um, you, you know, actually the other thing I should mention too is that the human placenta is quite unique compared to other animals. Um, it's, it's a lot different than mouse um, and even a little bit more, even a little bit more different than, than say chimps. Um, you know, uh, there's many pregnancy diseases that are uniquely human, um, such as preeclampsia. I mean, even chimps don't get preeclampsia. And it's it's due to this, um, the, the human placenta having an extremely invasive um, uh, placental, um, uh, basically the placenta is quite invasive. And so if it's unable to invade enough, then we get diseases of pregnancy or we get reduction of growth of the, of the fetus and the placenta as a whole and all of these horrible downstream um, effects in humans. And so, um, you know, I guess that's my North Star as I go towards my own lab is I want to try to get at those big questions um, related to um, studying preeclampsia and human pregnancy diseases with my models. Um, and I think that that may begin with studying uh, studying the the underlying um, uh, process of human villus development, and I want to do that both with the organoids and with blastoids. Yeah, I mean, I, I just love talking about this stuff. Like, I, I, this is not my area of expertise at all, but I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If I was a trainee, and as a trainee, I would love to join your lab, of course. Uh, I would love to work on this area of study because this is the hottest area of study in stem cell biology right now. Um, it's also the undoubtedly the most scrutinized and most ethically charged area of study, and understandably so. You know, it generates a lot of attention from the general public and mainstream media. After this paper came out, I'm sure you received a lot of interview requests from science and non-science news outlets. And as scientists who are actively working in this area of in vitro human modeling, um, you know, how do you ensure that your work is properly conveyed? to the general public who undoubtedly have misconceptions about this area of study. I mean, we're science communicators, Dalen and I, and this is really important to us. So how do you take an active role in communicating your groundbreaking science to the general public, or do you just let the work speak for itself? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, absolutely, Aaron. I think the terminology is, is key, right? So we're very cautious about what to call these structures. And uh, we consciously go with the term, you know, blastoid or human embryo model. Um, we like the term blastoid because it actually reflects how this model was initially established, right? Starting from naive cells to form this blastocyst-like structure, even though you extend it, right? It's still initiated as a blastoid. So we like that terminology, but just explaining Right, what the goal is. The goal is to model human development, to address these questions that Rowan outlined about implantation, um, early pregnancy loss that are you know, medically very important problems. Um, IVF, as, as Dalen mentioned, just improving rates of IVF success, overcoming recurrent pregnancy loss. We still have, uh, despite all this work, 
a lack of appropriate models to really begin to understand what's causing implantation failure and um, and also how to improve the rates of um, you know blastosis culture with different um, culture techniques. So I think explaining why you're doing it is key, right? This is not about making an entire embryo. It's about creating a model that we can then use to study how human development works, what goes wrong in these pregnancy complications. We added a, an ethics statement to our paper. So interestingly, when this paper was reviewed, the editor also sent it to an ethics reviewer. So that was not a scientist or it was really more of an ethicist. Um, and I thought that was very helpful. So we've added specific statements referring to the ISSCR guidelines, which are actually, it's worth talking about, right? So the ISSCR has decided um, that this day 14 rule is a little bit arbitrary. Um, so instead of talking about a defined time limit for these integrated embryo models, what's key is that you seek appropriate institutional approval for what you want to do and really grow these embryo models for the minimal time necessary to achieve the scientific objectives. And what we decided to do is consult our escrow committee, so the Embryonic Stem Cell Research Oversight Committee uh, here at WashU, and we explained to them, we'd love to be able to take this blastoid model up to the early stages of gastrulation, but not beyond that. We explained to them the evidence from that single gastrula embryo that was analyzed by Tizer et al, that you have this kind of sweet spot where primitive streak is forming, definitive endoderm is forming, mesoderm is forming, there's no neural induction yet. And that's exactly the limit that we've reached with this uh, integrated embryo model in vitro at the moment. So I think explaining the ethics process is key, but absolutely, we need more discussion about this. Um, big shout out to our colleagues, uh, Nicola among them, who recently published this paper in Cell, outlining an ethical framework for stem cell-based embryo models. I think it gets you know, exactly to the, to the point of the discussion. At some point, we're going to reach a tipping point where we are creating, you know, potentially within the next couple of years, structures that are almost indistinguishable from human embryos. And how do we deal with that as a field? What are the appropriate regulations? We need to have a lot more debate about that um, because the field moves so quickly. Um, and I was encouraged to see at the University of Cambridge, there's this initiative to have a big town hall discussion about the governance of stem cell-based embryo models. We're hoping to take part in that as well. So we need to talk about this as scientists. I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers. From our point of view, you know, Rowan mentioned all the exciting questions on the placental side. There's so many fascinating you know, developmental biology questions on the embryonic side as well. What are the signaling pathways? controlling epiblast development versus trophoblast development. We got into that a little bit in our paper, looking at wind signaling, but there's a lot more to do. So I think we have a, our work cut out for that initial period up to you know kind of the second to third week of human development, but there might be a scientific argument to go beyond that, but it needs to be very carefully reviewed and, and kind of debated before I feel scientists actually go ahead and begin to build these even more advanced integrated embryo models. Yeah, that, that's exactly it for me. I mean, this idea, which is an old idea of the, you know, the lone scientist ivory tower just had stooped over the bench doing the work, doing the work, let the work speak for itself. No, you got to talk about it. You got to tell the people what it is, because if you don't tell them what it is, someone else is going to come hijack the work and tell them what it isn't. Uh, and, and that's when things get pretty ugly. So I, I love that you really uh, talked us through that. It's about relating the science, explaining your your goals and 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 getting everybody on board. I mean, that's the key. 
is getting buy-in. And I think you guys have done it exactly right. And you're communicating it so well. Um, a bit of a pivot here, the cover, the cover of the cell stem cell issue that your story was the feature article. It, uh, it, it has a rendering of a pig with wings. Uh, it, it's a reference to the generation of humanized kidneys in these nephric defective pigs. But for me, it conjured the old adage, when pigs fly. And as such, uh, was an apt reference to your article as well. A lot of, I would say maybe even most developmental biologists a quarter century ago would have bet on pigs flying before skin cells would be reprogrammed to pluripotency, much less uh, ex vivo models of human and embryo development being constructed. So your work builds on decades of critical advances that no one saw coming or would have said were impossible even. Um, but there was a lot of major challenges to your own work, right? Of course. Uh, if you could share with us, both of you, what, what, what Rowan, starting with you, what, what was the toughest obstacle, uh, be it technical or otherwise, that you had to overcome to this point? Was there like a bottleneck where you were just grinding uh, and then were able to break through? I would say, I mean, I, I think the, the, the worst the, uh, or the, the, the biggest bottleneck that we had to overcome, I think, was just, uh, you know, we were already independently um, on our own working out the culture conditions to generate our own uh, blastoid models from uh, Thor's uh, naive, naive cells, right? Um, and I think uh, really um, systematically checking so many different inhibitors, growth factors, media compositions, um, that was, I would say, the biggest bottleneck to this to this uh, project um, was generating uh, the most analogous um, uh, blastoid models uh, that we could at the very beginning. Um, I, I do. I have to say that um, then after that, testing various um, media's and the um, the uh, extracellular matrix environment. That was, um, uh, I think, due to the fact that we just um, don't have too many options, uh, too many things to really test on that front. And, and it ended up, what I had ended up working, um, that that was relatively simpler, although still not uh, not, not simple at the same time um, to test all of those things. Um, especially, I guess, maybe the rest of the field can uh, empathize with me on this, that um, you know, it, this was during as well that every everyone was out of gels. There was a great Matrigel crisis of the past couple of years, and it, it wasn't just Matrigel; it was a few other products. So um, I was really uh, just working with whatever I had and trying a lot of things um, and just pursuing uh, through that, despite the challenges um, of of that kind of you know um, outside. Uh, uh, pressures and, and uh, problems, you know, right? Um, but but now that we have uh, better supply chains of, of all of these things, it's it's become much simpler to work with. It. And I hope that others will be able to take this model on and um, uh, be able to adopt it for their own studies as well. Um, so yeah, that was, I would say the original blaster, generating the blastoids, that was the biggest bottleneck. And then beyond that, there were a few, um, issues beyond that but uh, it wasn't it wasn't too different you know yeah i would second that and maybe just to add to that so on, on the gels um we're, we're actually quite interested in replacing these commercial gels with a synthetic hydrogel and we already have collaborators in, in place that we're working with uh, because we have noticed batch variability 
And what the field really needs is a synthetic matrix that fully recapitulates, you know, the properties of the endometrium, both in terms of physical stiffness, pore size, its biomechanical aspects. And most of us are just very comfortable using Matrigel, Geltrex, there's other types out there, but they do different things. And, and we documented that very nicely. If you just grow the blastoids on Matrigel, we get a ton of trophoblasts, but the embryonic disc does not develop very well. Um, but there's still work to be done to make this more consistent and overcome these, these issues with the batch variability. The other point I just wanted to mention, I think it's important for your listeners, especially the ones in the States, um, it is a challenge to fund this research. And it's it's not something to kind of, you know, just ignore, because th this is really a problem, I feel, in the U.S. So we were very fortunate that we had generous private foundations that supported our embryo modeling efforts. Um, these included the Shipley Foundation and the Malincrod Foundation. So big thanks, kudos to them for you know, giving us the green light to be able to do this work and um, having our, our backs here because the NIH will not allow any research proposal that involves blastoids, right? And the, the reason for this is this law from 1997, uh, which has been accepted um, every year when Congress meets, which states that you're not allowed to destroy human embryos for research purposes. And that includes parthenogenetic embryos. In other words, embryos that have kind of weird imprinting makeup that would never have full reproductive potential. One could make the argument that these blastoids are kind of similar to that. And so we're not able to use NIH funding. We're very careful not to do that in any of this research, but it does make it difficult for US-based researchers like ourselves to fund this. And I actually think it's going to create a little bit of a diaspora where some researchers will seek uh, you know, greener pastures in Europe, Middle East, Asia, you name it, where they do get government support. Um, and yeah, I think it's going to be a challenge long-term because this is clearly a model system that offers tremendous possibilities, things that you simply can't study in two dimensions, how do embryonic, extraembryonic cells talk to each other, modeling early pregnancy loss. And we think it's really the best model for it. The trophoblast organoids are probably a close proxy, but of course you're missing the whole communication with the embryonic compartment. Yeah, I mean, definitely a lot of challenges associated with this work. And you talked about so many of them funding, of course, uh, COVID supply chains. And one thing that we didn't really talk about, but I, I do want to bring it up briefly here at the end is, is the political climate, right? I mean, you're both at WashU St. Louis, which is certainly a, a biomedical research powerhouse here in the US. And we actually had a, a colleague of yours at WashU, a cardiac modeling expert, Nate Hupsch here on the show. Just, uh, yeah, we had a great chat with him just a couple episodes ago. I mean, we, he's of course also doing amazing work at WashU and it's WashU is in Missouri, right? Which is certainly one of the more conservative states in the USA. It's not unusual to have a biomedical research powerhouse in a politically conservative state. I'm, I'm from Alabama. I grew up in Alabama. And of course the U, UAB, University of Alabama, Birmingham is one of the world's leaders in xenotransplantation research of all things, right? Um, and that's certainly a biomedical research powerhouse too. But since you're specifically working in this area of study in reproductive biology, I just wanted to ask, did you ever run into any unique, say, political situations or considerations because you're working in Missouri? We've, we've been, honestly, we've been very well supported by our department, our institution. Again, we've, we went through the escrow process. That's a rigorous review, right? It involves scientists, 
uh, other stakeholders, I believe there's a rabbi on the escrow at WashU. So they take this very seriously and they, they look at these proposals uh, tested against the ISSCR standards. Um, and you know they decided to give us the green light, but with the clear understanding that this is going to be entirely funded, private sources, not a single federal dollar went into this research project. Likewise, there's no direct state support for this work. Um, so we feel very much um, kind of protected by our institution. And yeah, we haven't had those debates. I don't necessarily think that debate should take place at a state level. I, I really feel this, this should be a much broader debate. I'm not even sure it should be held at the level of the US government necessarily, but I think certainly as a scientific community, we need to agree on the right standards, um, the right ethical considerations, and then bring that to maybe po politicians uh, down the line. But we kind of need to have some consensus as a scientific community, what it is we want to achieve with these embryo models, how far we want to go. And again, I would uh, give a shout out to that recent ethical framework that was just published in Cell, which um, hits on all the right points. But absolutely, we do need to have a broader debate about the future of these embryo models because they're coming quickly and they're only getting more complex. I will say, you know, I I got my PhD here at the University of Missouri, which is a publicly uh, it's a public institution, state school um, here, and I was working with embryonic stem cells there um, in the only lab on campus that was working with them generating triple blood stem or triple blood cells from these prime cells, and um, I did have an experience where we had politicians who came after us. Um, and they tried to say that, you know, they tried to shut down all embryonic stem cell research happening at the University of Missouri. It ended up being a huge um, issue for the city of Columbia um, and the state as a whole. I, or, I don't know how, how far it really went, but at least for us, it was, it was quite scary um, that all of our work that we were working so hard on, um, especially considering as well that it was um, you know, we were studying pregnancy diseases, we were studying preeclampsia, we were working with an IPSC model of preeclampsia at the time, you know, we were trying to help women um, and help babies, and there were people out there using it as a political football, quite literally, um, that was uh, really hard to get through, but luckily, um, it ended up fine, that work is still ongoing at the University of Missouri, thankfully, and they're still able to work with embryonic stem cells there, but, um, you know, I guess, uh, I feel much more, I, I'm still here in the state despite that experience. Uh, I could have run far away from here. Um, <laughs> Thanks for saying. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, but I stuck it out and I came here um, because WashU, I know, is a place that supports innovative and, you know, important research like this. And um, that, that we're, importantly, we're privately funded. It's not a state school, so I felt far more protected here um, than, uh, say, the place I was before. Um, so um, I guess, yeah, I've had quite a few experiences here. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I feel very protected at WashU. And um, I, I hope that, I, I absolutely hope that this really important research can continue. I think that, um, you know, we're doing great work to help, you know, you know like I said, I hope trans in the future that, you know, this will become more translational in the future, that we will actually make, uh, that someday we're going to make uh, progress on, um, you know, helping uh, women and babies and couples um, conceive and have healthy children. Um, that's, that's obviously our goal here. 
Yeah, that's the dream. And that's the soon to be reality, it seems with as fast as things are moving. And as I said before, you know, sometimes politicians are other inflammatory, you know, figures uh, will hijack the work. And, and it's for you guys to come out here and, and share with our listeners in the world, uh, not only what you're doing, but why. And it's, it's clear to me that Missouri had a lot to lose. <laughs> Thank God able to shut down the IPS program because then where would you have been Rowan where would you where would this work have been it may have never come to be so uh you know as we you know IPS cells were developed in the past to address some of those polarizing political arguments around the destruction of embryo here now we've moved on to creating models of embryo so that we don't have to use actual you know bona fide discarded human embryos I think that's progress uh, but there's plenty of people out there that would, you know, skew it to 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 add some, I don't know what kind of element for whatever their purpose is. And I just want to thank you guys, not only for doing this great work uh, in a very competitive field, but also being so transparent about the process and sharing with us your adventure, so to speak. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Rowan, as soon as you start your lab, you come back on as the PI. Can't wait to talk to you and Thor. You know, you've been such a, a an amazing mentor. And uh, I want to highlight that is that uh, Rowan postdoc at the ISSCR, the last two ISSCR meetings, Rowan has given a big talk and that can only add fuel to her fire. And that's what, again, has led her to this point. So kudos to you. Kudos to Wash U. I mean, let's congratulate everybody. Everybody who contributed to this amazing story. Uh, and again, thank you guys for coming on the show. Thanks for having us, Dalen. Everyone really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, you guys. I mean, it's a trip. We're, we're, we're at it. We're living in an era of human embryo modeling and it's not gonna stop. But that brings us to the end of this discussion. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. You know, I'm thinking before the week is up, there'll be another two or three human embryo model papers coming out. So in a couple of weeks, we'll have more on that. But until then, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.